prayer for forgiveness based upon the nature of the Lord and the desire for continued fellowship with the Lord. It's going to be broken down into three different portions with regard to an outline. The confession proper is found in verses 1 through 6. We started that last week. We'll finish it this week. In verses 7 through 12, we see the relationship between restoration and spiritual service. The relationship between restoration to fellowship and spiritual service. When we get to that section, we'll see that it's not just about restoration, but it's what do we do after we're restored to fellowship. And then finally, in verses 13 through 19, we'll see the relationship between restoration and worship. In the first two verses of this psalm, which read this way, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy hesed, or perhaps be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the compassion, to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In the first two verses, we observed last week that David uses three different words for sin, three different Hebrew words. The first word, which is translated, my transgressions, means more precisely, my rebellious acts. The Hebrew word used is pesha. It was used in military contexts to describe open and intentional rebellion. David is not here trying to cover up his sin, but he's calling it what it is, willful rebellion against God. David knew full well that murder and adultery were wrong. He openly rebelled against what he knew to be God's will. He uses another term for sin here that's translated my iniquity in verse 2. It's the Hebrew noun avon, which means departing from the standard way. And the third word that's translated my sin is the Hebrew noun hata, and it clearly means to, to miss a goal or to miss the mark. And sin is more, though, than just missing a mark. It's more than an archer aiming an arrow at a mark and missing the right target, sin is hitting the wrong target. And all that is bound up in this word, hata. In the Old Testament, all the terms for sin have to be measured against the standards, the Torah, the law of God, which revealed, among other things, the holiness of God. Here, David declares that his actions that he had committed that were recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 were rebelliousness. They were rebellious actions against God's holiness as it was revealed in the law. God has revealed himself to us. We don't have to wonder what is sin. He told us, and David knew, and he did it anyway. David's picture of sin here in Psalm 51, as he confesses, is open, direct, honest, and I must say it's painful. We also observed in the first two verses that God's forgiveness, according to David in this psalm, writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is an act of mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. When we approach God in prayer and confess our sins, we are seeking an act of mercy and or grace on God's part, not merely an act of justice. I think it's a mistake to view confession and restoration from the human side as a legal transaction. God may view it that way. I don't believe he does. But let's let's just, for the sake of argument, we can assume he views it as a legal transaction. 
We shouldn't view it as a legal transaction. We are not a lawyer arguing in court against God saying, you have to forgive me. Christ died for that sin. You have to forgive me. We're missing the whole point. The entire point is that's the way that we go to God in confession of sin. That is not a confession. We are not lawyers in a courtroom. We should be humble servants of the Lord that go to him, in essence, confessing that sin, laying ourselves bare before him, and we're expecting, because of who he is, an act of mercy on his part. Salvation is by grace through faith. Restoration is by grace through confession. Did you see one word that's common to both of those equations? Grace. It's an act of grace both times. God is self-obligated. He is not obligated from without, only from within. He chose to obligate himself to forgive our sins when we confess. He's promised, and he's faithful to that promise. He will forgive every time we confess. There is a legal transaction that takes place. I don't want to say that there's not. But I'm saying it's the colossal arrogance and hubris on our part to go to God with the attitude, the primary attitude, that it's a legal transaction from our point of view. People have cited Plato in the Greek word homologeo in the New Testament of an ancient reference where Plato used that term in this way, to cite as in a courtroom case. I've gone through the classical Loeb Library at Dallas Theological Seminary and through all the indices and, and looked up every time that Plato used the word homo legal, and I can't find that reference. It may be there, but I just can't find it. And even if it is there, remember that Plato wrote hundreds of years before the New Testament. If there does happen to be a reference to homo legal as to cite as in a courtroom case, it's an obscure reference. It's bad method to take an, an obscure reference, if there is one, hundreds of years before the New Testament was written to make this totally a legal transaction. We need to go with what's in the text, the example that we have. And the example that we have is an act of mercy. Be gracious to me. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. The infinite personal God of the universe is merciful, and he is kind, and he is gracious. He's promised that, we'll, that he will forgive every time that we admit that we're guilty. His promise means that he's obligated from within, not from without. He doesn't get backed into a corner by his children who think that we're attorneys in a courtroom citing something and getting him on a technicality. We need to forever expel that from our thinking about confession. When we do that, we're, it's, it's like we're... It's like we're treating God as something other than the sovereign, holy God of the universe who sent his son to die for those sins. We need to be ever so careful. The third thing that we learn from the first two verses is that David didn't desire partial restoration. He wanted complete restoration. He wanted to be totally clean. He wanted a complete return to the fellowship that he had before. And so he uses... Three imperatives, which are really polite entreaties. He's not commanding God to do anything, but this just shows how urgent the situation is to him. Have mercy upon me. Blot out these sins. Wash me, he says. We studied these last week. There was a key word here in the first two verses that we mentioned briefly. I'd like to mention it again. It's the, it's the Hebrew term chesed, which describes the Lord's faithfulness to keep his promise because of his love. That word has been translated a lot of different ways in, in English translations of Hebrew Bible. Loyal love, mercy, grace, loving kindness. And it describes God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant love for his own. The point is, 
that David's appeal for mercy is based upon a relationship, a covenant relationship or a relationship of promise that God has given to him. David is the child of God, and his father, his dad, his Abba, has made this promise to him. And David is counting on the honesty and the integrity and the faithfulness of his Abba, his father, to keep his word. It's a beautiful passage. David was a great man who did a really evil thing. Now, some people might say, how could you say that David was a great man when he committed adultery and murder? This is how I can say that. Because the Bible says it. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. It's not my opinion. It's the opinion of the Holy Spirit. And we've wondered, why in the world would, would people like David be considered great? People like Paul be considered great? People like Peter be considered great? Or Moses considered great? Because we can go down a laundry list of sins that these people have committed. And we're not excusing the sin. But in my humble opinion, the thing that, that ties all four of those men together, David and Moses in the Old Testament, Peter and Paul in the New Testament, is that they all failed greatly, but they all understood and appreciated, perhaps more than anybody in their generation, God tested his loving kindness, his mercy. They appreciated God for who he was. They had no pretenses about who they were, but they appreciated God for who he was. Now, you don't have to commit murder to have this attitude. We should all have this attitude, no matter when we sin, because all sin is offensive to the holiness of God. So we see David in humility, appeals to God in mercy as he makes a confession of his sin. Now let's consider the confession proper in verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me to know wisdom. There are two parts to David's confession. In verses 3 and 4, he acknowledges that he sinned. And in verses 5 and 6, he acknowledges that he's a sinner. Subtle difference, but there is a difference. In verses 3 and 4, he acknowledges that he committed a sin. And then in verses 5 and 6, he's acknowledging that he's a sinner. He's not saying that he's a sinner because he sinned. He's acknowledging that he sinned because he's a sinner. He's making no excuses for his sin whatsoever. And by the way, when we go to God and make our confession, we don't need to make a bunch of excuses either. You know, Father, yes, I did this, but you know, that, there was extraordinary circumstances when I did that. Just save all that. Just tell him what you did. He already knows what you did. Admit to him that what you did was wrong. That's what he's waiting to hear. No excuses, sir. No excuses, sir. That's what he wants to hear. But David's recognizing the presence of his own sinful nature. It would be good to recognize here and in other places, like the Lord's Prayer, mentioned in Matthew chapter 6, that this prayer is not one that was intended to be memorized and repeated verbatim. This is something very personal on David's part. And when we deal with God, we're dealing with a person, not a machine. And you're his child. You don't need somebody else to write what you need to say to God. Speak to him from your heart. And if David was a great man and this is what's in his heart, then might we learn something from it. For I know 
my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Unconfessed sin in the life is a burden to the believer. And the more mature you are in your Christian experience, the more burdensome it will be. And David was a mature believer when he committed these sins. There's no way around it. He was probably at the height of his maturity, at least up to that point, when he committed these sins. And he was miserable for the time that he was walking out of fellowship with God. That's what he's saying here in verse 3. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I think it's an act of grace on God's part to not let us feel comfortable when we're walking out of fellowship with him. It wouldn't be good for us to feel comfortable, to feel good, to feel satisfied, to feel content. It's better that we don't because it motivates us to come back to him. Remember, God never goes anywhere. We're the ones that leave. It's not like God needs to come back to us. We need to come back to him. God the Holy Spirit works through the conscience of the believer to convict the believer of their sin. For the maturing believer, the conviction is often painful. And there will be no satisfaction of the soul until sin is dealt with. Just as the act of forgiveness is a, it's a function of grace, so also is this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we may not like it at the time, but it's an act of God's grace that we don't feel comfortable when we're walking out of fellowship with God. It's an act of grace that we're not comfortable in our sin. And by saying that he knows his sin, he's owning up to it. And he's calling it what it is, sin. God used Nathan the prophet to drive David over the edge. I really have no doubt that he had a feeling of angst, a feeling of discomfort for many, many months. But he needed somebody to push him over the edge, and that was Nathan the prophet. David's interaction with Nathan brought his sin to the surface. Now, Nathan's working on behalf of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is causing David's sin to pop up like a balloon that's been held underneath the water. It pops right back up. David says, I've got to deal with this. He either had to call his sin, sin, or he would have to refuse to recognize that what he did was a sin and then bury the guilt deep within his soul where it would do damage to every aspect of his being. Now, I'm no psychologist, and I'm no psychiatrist. I've had many courses in psychology and abnormal psychology, no courses in psychiatry, but I will tell you this. I believe that one of the causes, perhaps not the singular cause, I'm not in any way implying that, but at least one cause of mental illness is sin that has been suppressed for months, if not years, maybe decades. It messes with your whole mind, your whole soul, when we suppress it and refuse to admit that what we did was wrong. And I think that's why so many believers don't have any peace in their lives. They go for decades and never confess a sin. And they have to pretend that it wasn't really quite so bad. Oh, all right, it wasn't quite so good either, but it wasn't quite so bad. If you just knew what my brother was doing or my sister was doing or what my wife did or what my husband did, you wouldn't be coming down so hard on me. Look at them. Look at them. And God says, no, I've, I'll deal with them myself. I'm looking at you. And more importantly, you need to look at you. And I need to look at me. And if there is something there, it needs to be admitted. It's an act of liberation and to come clean with God. And he stands there ready not to beat you up, but to restore you and put his anthropomorphic arm around you. And to bring you back into his fellowship. 
That's the way God wants us to live. So he's provided this remedy for post-salvation sin. And in the interest of honesty, he wants you to use it. That's all he's talking about, just being honest with yourself. He goes on to say, against thee and the only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when you judge. If we were to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, the last line in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember that line? That's the way that chapter 11 ended. And what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now you see what he says in verse 4. What he did, David is, David is echoing that. He's saying that he had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. What I did was evil in your sight. David is taking the same view of what he did that God took of what he did. This is one of the things that makes David great in spite of this great sin. And some people that would put David down, and I have talked to psychologists that have done this, don't know the first thing about a relationship with God. Because in their own souls, they think they haven't done murder or adultery, so they must be okay. And God's saying, no, you're suppressing something. The thing that made David great was he didn't suppress it. Objectively, after he came face to face with it, he admitted it. And he said the same thing about his sin that God had said about his sin, that it was evil in his sight. He recognized it. Yeah, what I did was wrong. You think it's wrong, Father? I think it's, I recognize that it's wrong. I'm agreeing with you that it's wrong. It gives us an interesting insight into the concept of confession. David here is in full submission mode, I would call it. He's in complete agreement with God that what he did was evil. There is no latent rebellion, no excuses. This is personal and it's transparent. It's an acknowledgement that what he did was wrong. When he says against thee and thee only have I sinned, he is not saying that what he did was not wrong to Uriah or even Bathsheba for that matter. Of course he wronged Uriah. He murdered him. Of course he wronged him. And while he couldn't apologize to Uriah, I suspect, I have to wait to get to heaven and I'm going to ask him after I get to know him fairly well. I don't know if he'll have that red-headed temper in heaven or not, but I'm going to ask him, did you ever apologize to Bathsheba? Because you were the king, you kind of got her into this situation. But this verse was never meant, against thee and thee only have I sinned, it's never meant to be used like some people use it, and gives us the impression that our sins are never to be dealt with on a person-to-person basis. James chapter 5 makes it clear that we should go to somebody and say, I'm sorry, sometimes. It doesn't hurt. It helps in interpersonal, in an interpersonal interactions. David is just saying that ultimately the sin that was committed, ultimately the sin that's committed is against the only one that's perfectly holy, and that's God. But he's not saying that he didn't wrong Uriah. I remember a line from a movie. It was actually a book first back from when I was in high school called Love Story. Remember that? Eric Siegel. Remember this line? It was even on the cover of the posters that were put up. Love means never having to say you're sorry. In the book, Eric Siegel actually wrote, love means not ever having to say you're sorry. Isn't that beautiful? poetic. It is so pretty, but it's actually one of the most ridiculous and absurd lines that has ever been uttered in the English language. You had better say you're sorry. 
if you want to keep any kind of interpersonal relationship, especially with your spouse. Husbands and wives better learn to say they're sorry. Mothers and fathers and sons and daughters better learn to say they're sorry. Friends better learn to say that. Some way or another, my bad, sorry about that. However it works for you, you better learn to say it because you have injured another person. But David is not speaking to that. He's not saying that we don't injure others when we sin, although we have no need to apologize to others that we've hurt, but rather that all sin at its core is against God. What he's saying more is you can't just apologize to the person and think you're restored to fellowship with God. You've got to go to him and be restored to fellowship with him. God first and then the individual second. But what about the second half of verse 5? Or verse 4, rather. So that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. In admitting his guilt, which is what David did in his confession, David at the same time is acknowledging that God is perfectly just, and that he judges fairly, and that his character is not violated in any way when he sits in judgment upon David's sin. If you choose to discipline me, help me to take it, because I know i got it coming to me, Lord. That's what he's saying. He's not violating his holiness in any way by holding David accountable. Then in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me to know wisdom. This first phrase has caused a lot of ink to be spilt in theological writings. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin My mother conceived me. Some hold that David was implying here that he was conceived, his mother and father conceived him outside of the bounds of marriage, tying the iniquity to his mother. But in my view, that's not what's going on here. This passage is not about David's mother. It's not about her sin. It's not about anybody else's sin. It's about his sin. He's not talking about some sin that his mother committed a long time ago. It would be foreign to the context of this psalm to bring up something other than David's own sin, a sin over which David had no control whatsoever. This is not talking about his mama. Frankly, I don't think there's any evidence that David was, an, as people would say, an illegitimate child. And by the way, I don't think there are any illegitimate children. I think they're illegitimate parents. The child didn't have anything to do with it. The label ought to go on the parents, not on the child. That's just my opinion. No, no, that's not what's going on. In verses 5 and 6, David is acknowledging his own complete moral impotence. He says, in effect, my whole nature has been depraved since birth, even though God desired a morally reliable person as one Old Testament fellowship with. From the moment David was conceived, his body was one of moral corruption. And when he was born, that sinful nature became operational. Children are a gift from God. But David's not using this moment to emphasize that truth. David, just like Paul will later do in Romans chapter 5, is indicating that he was born with a corrupt nature. He was born physically alive, but spiritually dead from the get-go. So he's emphasizing in this section of this psalm his complete and total moral impotence. 
You see, he sinned, and he is sinful. David just laying it all out before God. The sin nature is inherited from Adam. And that's not the way God originally planned it, but that's the way it happened. That's Romans chapter 5. Now, there are different theories. There are competing theological theories on exactly how that works out. But Romans chapter 5 does talk about sin that came from Adam. Adam rebelled against the sovereignty of God, and nothing has been the same since. We'll not be rescued from this body of corruption until we breathe heavenly air. It's going to take that long. And the sin nature never becomes eradicated. That's a false theology. It's not as as though we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and my sin nature gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It's not there anymore. No. You'll carry this sinful nature with you to the day you die. And I hate to tell you, but it's going to be just as strong on the day that you take your last breath as it is today. Now, we, I think, in our spiritual lives, become stronger, too, to be able to tell that sin nature, no, I'm not going to do that. Or perhaps we've been burned and, and bruised so many times that we didn't realize it's not worth it to do that anymore. But the sinful nature doesn't weaken over time. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So when he says, but behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's talking about the sinful nature, not some sort of inappropriate sexual activity on his mother's part. I just don't see the evidence for that. But look at verse 6, our last verse for tonight. Behold, that, that could also be translated, look, watch, listen. Thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. He's, this is David talking to God. This is what God desires, truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, thou will make me to know wisdom. The word truth there is emmet, a very important Hebrew word. And it carries the idea with it of something that is reliable, firm, and dependable. Truth is something that can be depended upon, that which is reliable. It also is something that corresponds to reality. If you were to ask me one, one phrase definition of what is truth, truth is that which corresponds to reality. And that means when it comes to us in our own position before God, we just need to be honest with ourselves and with God. But this is talking about being honest with ourselves. He says, you desire truth in the innermost being, or the inward part. We've got to be transparent completely with ourselves and with God, deep down. We must be honest about who we are. Now, I'm talking about a special relationship with you and God. I'm not talking about somebody holding you accountable, an accountability partner. All that stuff's fine and and good when it's kept in its proper perspective. But at its core, like David had already said, this is a, a transaction. This is a transaction of grace and peace and mercy and grace between you and God, privately, between you and God. Then you can deal with other people, too. But this is something very private. You need to come clean with yourself first and then with God. That's all he's saying. That's why he says, I require truth, that which corresponds to reality. The reality is we've done something that's offended him. That's the reality. And we need to come clean about that and be transparent with ourselves and with God. Otherwise, we go back to what we talked about a minute ago. As soon as we suppress it and refuse to admit it, I'm talking about to God, to ourselves first and then to God, then our whole soul is going to get messed up. 
and we're going to go along, we're going to go to church, and we're going to sing in the choir, or, or we're going to help do the setup, or we're going to work on sound, or do whatever it is that we do, and we're going to go for years, and we're never going to feel content, and we're going to wonder why. You say, I'm in church every time the doors are open. I go to Bible study. I go to the prayer meetings. I don't know why I'm not happy. I don't know why I'm not content. And I'm going to tell you, perhaps one of the reasons is that we are suppressing consistently every day something that we know is a sin. Now, I've heard the verse, too, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You heard the first part, right? If we confess our sins. But if there's something that we're refusing to confess because we're refusing to admit that it's a sin, you haven't done 1 John 1, 9. So don't blame 1 John 1, 9 for not working. You haven't used it. Are you following me? God wants us to become totally transparent with ourselves and with him. That's why I think, what you require, God, I know what you require. You require total honesty on my part. You want me to come clean. Well, here it is. George Mueller, my friend that ministers in Africa, has a great way of teaching the Africans this truth. He says, all you're really doing is telling God something he already knows. There's no revelation to him. It's not like, oh, wow, I didn't know you did that. I'm glad you told me. Now I can discipline you. He already knew it. You're the one that needs, I'm the one that needs to change. And he's sitting there waiting for us to change. So we have to be honest with ourselves. Deep down honesty. You know, if we're never deep down honest about our own depravity, we'll never fully appreciate the grace of God. If we never fully appreciate the grace of God, we will not mature in our Christian life. I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how many Bible studies you attend or what seminary degrees you have. It doesn't matter. If we don't fully appreciate the grace of God, we're never going to mature. That's what I think. As I said a minute ago, I think that's what made Moses great and David great and Paul great and Peter great. I think that's what they did. They understood the grace of God. Peter denied his best friend and his Lord three times, but he knew he did it. I bet if you met the older Peter, he would have been one of the most humble people you're going to meet. There would have been no guile left in him. Same way with David for the last 20 years of his life. Now, he sinned again. Did you know that? Have you read ahead? He's going to get disciplined again for another sin he committed. Just because he gets rid of it this time doesn't mean he's sinless for the rest of his life. But he's honest with himself. Are we honest with ourselves? Are we kidding ourselves? Unless we fully appreciate grace, we're never going to become mature. And unless we are totally honest with ourselves, we'll never fully 